You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. despite that introduction, I really do like your pastor. (laughs) All kidding aside, uh, I admire and respect Pastor Steve. Um, We have served together in this community on the ministerial association and done a lot of joint efforts. And so I'm grateful for his heart for the unity of the, the church in Wells County, right? The church. There's one church in Wells County. And Steve promotes that. And then just his heart for the lost and the hurting, not just here at home, but to the ends of the earth as well. And so I'm uh, very grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for the warm hospitality that I've sensed already. As Pastor Steve mentioned, uh, he asked me to address this subject of prayer and uh, just love the challenge that he's laid before you when it comes to making prayer more of a priority in the local church. We need more of that. And so I listened to all five of his messages uh, on the subject. He laid a solid foundation when it comes to prayer, and I hope to build on that today in the time that we have together. So yeah, when I think of prayer, I think of a little old lady, a dear saint who believed in the power of prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard that story before or not, Uh, but every day she would begin her day on a note of prayer, and so she'd walk outside her door, she'd walk on her front porch, she'd lift her hands to the sky, and she'd say, praise the Lord. Well, it wasn't long after that an atheist moved in next door. And uh, he grew tired of this process happening every day. And so when she would step out and, and lift her hands to the sky and say, praise the Lord, he would sneer back, there is no God. That went on for some time. Well, finally, one day she stepped out. It was the middle of winter, stepped out on her porch, and she said, praise the Lord. Lord, I have no money, I have no food, I'm hungry, please provide for me. The next day, she came out on her porch, and there were two bags of groceries sitting there. She lifted her hand, she said, praise the Lord. The atheist just then jumps out from the bushes. He said, there is no God, I bought those groceries and put them on your porch. She thought about that for a second. She said, praise the Lord. Not only has he provided groceries for me, but he even made the devil pay for them. (laughs) You have a Bible today? Uh, Let's head in the direction of 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings about halfway through the Old Testament. 1 Kings is right before the book of... Second Kings, wow. You folks know your Bible. Pastor Steve, you have done a great job of training these folks. First Kings 18, that's where we're going to drop anchor this morning. You can either use a hard copy. There's some available actually in the back. That's great. Pull it up on your electronic device if you'd like to do that. But we're going to move right down through that text this morning. 
I'd like to begin today with a question, if I could. Have you ever attended a worship service only to walk away thinking, that was a nice service, nothing unusual, but certainly nice. The worship was uplifting, the the sermon encouraging, the special music inspirational, and yet something seemed wrong. It's almost like you can't quite put your finger on it, but you sense a longing in your heart for something more, and you can't help but wonder if something, or perhaps more accurately, someone is missing. Well, if you've ever sensed that, then you'll undoubtedly be able to relate to these words by Rhonda Huey. In her excellent book, Desperate for God, she writes this. She says, a widespread cry is growing in the hearts of believers for a real, tangible encounter with God. They want, like Moses, to see him face to face. They don't want only to read about him, talk about him, and pay homage to him on Sunday mornings. This strong undercurrent in our nation manifests itself as a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo of the institutional church. Many people who have attended church faithfully for years are now wandering around disconnected from any collective expression of the body of Christ. What are people longing for? In a phrase, I would say it's the presence of God in the midst of his people. Really what we were just singing about moments ago. I do not know of a greater need in the American church, thinking across our nation today, I do not know of a greater need in the American church than for the fire of God to fall. What do I mean by fire? I'm talking about the manifest presence and glory of God, the supernatural power of God. I'm talking about services that are more than just nice meetings with nice music and nice preaching. I'm talking about results that cannot be explained in human efforts. I'm talking about that which man cannot program, manipulate, plan, or make happen. I'm talking about something more than the ordinary operation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. I'm talking about the extraordinary outpouring of his spirit. The fire of God. Fred Hartley, in his book, The fire of God's presence says this. He said, when the living God wants to communicate his presence tangibly to ordinary people like you and me, it's surprising how often he does it using the imagery of fire. Or how about this from the well-respected German Bible scholar Gerhard Kittel. He said, in almost all the Old Testament theophanies, fire appears as a way of representing the unapproachable sanctity and overpowering glory of Yahweh. It's interesting that both the Old Testament and the New Testament declare our God is a consuming fire. Or we could go to Ephesians 3.21. It makes it clear that God intends for his glory to be revealed. Where? In the church, right? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Isn't it obvious God desires for his glory to be manifested in the church in every generation and in every culture. And since that's the case, then the question we need to ask ourselves today actually coincides with my sermon title, namely, why? 
why no fire? Why is there no fire in the church across this nation today? I believe there's three insights directly from this text. If you're a note taker and you want to pull out a scrap of paper, if you have a notepad, three insights that I believe come right out of the passage that we'll be studying today that actually answer the question, why no fire? The first one is this, reason number one, why no fire? Because we're content to persist without it. We're going to get a running start in our passage today. And so we'll actually flip back a page or two to 1 Kings chapter 16. Let me just kind of set the stage here. This is 1 Kings 16. We'll dive in at verse 30 where it makes it very clear that the problem of evil was becoming progressively worse in the northern kingdom of Israel. Look what it says, beginning at verse 30. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah poles and did more to provoke the God of Israel, more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. It's quite an indictment, isn't it? And it was into that setting of pervasive wickedness that God sent his messenger, Elijah. And we first encounter the prophet in, in verse 1 of chapter 17. So if you look there with me, it's actually Elijah who marches into the palace of Ahab. He points his finger in the wicked king's face and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except when I say so, except at my word. And then he walked out. This prophetic word was not only a pronouncement of divine judgment on a nation that had turned to wickedness and idolatry, but it was also a proclamation that even though Baal was considered the lord of the rain clouds, he was powerless to produce rain. There's a familiar pattern throughout the pages of our Bible. I'm sure as you study the word, you've picked up on it. When God's people live in obedience, God's favor, God's blessing, his presence rests on them. Conversely, the opposite is true as well, isn't it? When God's people rebel against him, when they practice sin and deliberately ignore his truth, what happens? He withdraws his presence and his people face the consequences. And so that's exactly what's happening here in 1 Kings 17. Essentially what God is saying is this, hey, if you want to ignore me, if you want to rebel against my commands and worship false gods of rain and fertility, then let's see how you do going without water for a while. It was intended to be a wake-up call. The drought was God's way of getting their attention. Did it work? Was it successful? Well, you be the judge. Check it out. We're now in chapter 18. We made it to 1 Kings 18, specifically verse 10. It's now three years into the drought, and Ahab has sent messengers to all the surrounding nations and kingdoms in search of the prophet. Elijah was public enemy number one. His picture was in every post office of the county. 
It even had made it, his picture had even made it onto a few milk cartons with this text. Have you seen this prophet? There can be little question. The drought and subsequent famine had gotten the attention of the people. And it really set the stage for one of the biggest spiritual confrontations in history. Pick it up at verse 19. We read there, Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to, them, he said to him, Is that you, you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah replies, I've not made trouble for Israel. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command. You have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah and eat, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, and he assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long? How long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. So get the picture here, gang. Get the picture Elijah's throwing down the gauntlet, isn't he? It was time for these people to decide. No more going through the motions. No more faking spiritual intimacy. No more one foot in God's camp and one foot in Baal's camp. It's time to get off the fence. Which way are you going to go? I find it rather fascinating if you had polled these people on that day, if you'd asked them the question, what's your greatest need? The overwhelming response would have been, water. <laughs> we need water. But in reality, as Elijah understood, their greatest need was for fire. The fire of God's presence. Are you tracking with me this morning? They thought they needed water. But in reality, they were blind to their greatest need. In similar fashion, if we in the 21st century American church were asked to state our greatest need, I think we might talk about bigger buildings or more money or more volunteers or a better staff or more equipment, etc. When in reality, our greatest need is for God Himself. Like the nation of Israel, we're blind to our greatest need. We're, we've become satisfied with status quo. Why no fire? Because by and large, we're content without it. We, we don't think we need it. We need it. Much like the church of Laodicea, the church of America says, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. And look what Jesus says in response. Look what Christ says. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Reason number one, why no fire? Because we're content to persist without it. Reason number two, because we're convinced... That we, can, that we have to produce it. We're convinced that we're the ones that have to produce it. Elijah spells out the conditions for the contest in verse 22 and following. So look there with me, will you? 
Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll do the same thing. I'll prepare the other bull, put it on wood, but not set fire to it. You call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. The time comes for the coin toss, and Elijah wins. He decides he'll kick off. He wants to start on defense. Apparently, he won in the last at-bats. And so he allows the false prophets to go first. Now, I'm sure there were some in the crowd that day that questioned that decision. Already grossly outnumbered, this gave even more momentum to Baal's boys. They would be the first to choose their sacrifice. They would be the first to pray. And undoubtedly, they would be the first to receive that required sign of fire. After all, with Baal being the god of the storm, all they needed was like one stray lightning bolt, right? Certainly, there were some who shook their heads and wondered about Elijah's strategy on that day. But the prophet refuses to panic. Instead, he takes a seat on the sidelines and calmly watches the festivities. And the false prophets begin to pray and chant and dance and cry out to their God. The more frenzied their activity, the more Elijah's actually amused. So much so that he could not resist the urge to engage in a little bit of sanctified sarcasm. I love people who practice the spiritual gift of sanctified sarcasm. Just makes you anxious for the day when we can hang out with people like this in heaven, right? So what did, what did Elijah say? Well, he begins to kind of taunt them. He says, why don't you guys pray louder? Maybe your God's sleeping. Perhaps he went on vacation. Maybe he's in another part of the universe conducting personal business. And of course, the more the prophet taunted, the more frantic the false prophets became until eventually they even start mutilating their own flesh in order to gain their God's attention. One cannot help but notice some striking similarities to the church in our day. By and large, we're, we're not lacking activity, fervor, or attempts to obtain spiritual power. On the contrary, our church calendars are bulging with services, retreats, conferences, and programs. We're making lots of noise. We're, we're busy. There's lots of motion and energy being expended. And yet too often there's a deafening silence from the heavens. There's, there's no fire. And it's not that we're not trying, because we are. But apparently all of our programs, our promotions, our meetings, our buses, our budgets, our baptisms, our committees and conventions have failed to produce the one thing which we most desperately need, and that is fire from heaven. I don't know, gang. I don't know. But is it possible? Is it just perhaps possible that the reason we haven't experienced the fire of God's presence is that we're trying to produce it in our own power? And through our own strength. Stop and think about it. If we produce the fire, then we can control it, can't we? And I'm afraid that too often we want the fire, but 
We want it on our terms. We, we want a tidy religious experience that we can manage, a tidy religious experience that we can control. And in our concern to avoid the excesses and abuses of certain movements, we actually put the Spirit of God in a box. We insist that he operate according to our preconceived notions because we're afraid of what might happen if God really showed up. And I would even go so far to say if that we're being painfully honest today, deep down for many of us, I'm not sure we're really convinced that it can still happen. Just how hungry are we? We say we're hungry for God, but are we really? Even on a typical Sunday morning, how much time is invested in preparing our hearts? Do we block out time on, on Saturday night? Do we block out time on, a, on early Sunday morning to pray in anticipation of what God wants to accomplish in our hearts? Do we walk into this room expecting God to show up? Do we come excited to express our love and our adoration to our great God? Or do we place the, the burden on the platform people to keep us engaged and entertained and then complain when they don't? As I read and study this passage, I, I can't help but wonder, how would we handle the situation if it were to occur today? How, how would we go about calling down fire from heaven? Oh, we might accept the challenge. We, we might even verbally insist that God's going to do it. But we're a lot more self-sufficient these days, aren't we? We're a lot more sophisticated in our approach. And so more than likely, we'd set up a remote control ignition switch along with some gunpowder, just, you know, just as precautionary measures. We've got things so wired in the church today that if God doesn't show up, we can still win the contest. We've got plans B, C, D, and E as backups. And how do you suppose the Lord responds under those circumstances? My hunch is he reacts by saying, you know, I don't believe I need to show up. If you're going to do it, then I'm just going to let you struggle through it on your own. Why no fire? Because we're content to persist without it, because we're convinced that if it's going to happen, we're the ones that have to produce it. Reason number three, because we choose not to pursue it. We choose not to pursue it. You didn't close the text, did you? We're coming to the most exciting part here. Pick it up at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Don't miss that phrase. In fact, if you like to mark up your Bible, that would be a good one to underline or highlight or circle. He repaired the altar of the Lord. What's that tell us? It's in ruins, obviously due to neglect and lack of use, all of which raises a very critical question for us today. 
What kind of shape is your altar in? Is the place where you privately meet with God in, in, in a state of a disrepair? Tell you what, hold that thought. We'll come back to it. One by one, Elijah rebuilds that altar. He selects 12 stones, reconstructs the altar, prepares the sacrifices, places it on the altar. Nothing out of the ordinary yet. But then he catches them all off guard. Most of you are probably familiar with this story. He turns to the crowd. He directs them to fill four barrels full of water and pour them all over that sacrifice. Then he says to them, do it again. And then he says, do it a third time. Now, I'm no uh, pyrotechnician. But I'm pretty sure if, that, if, if my life depended on this altar igniting, I wouldn't have poured water all over it. Certainly not 12 barrels. Gasoline, maybe, right? But certainly not water. Not Elijah. And watch now. There are no matches, no gas, no magic tricks, no gyrations. Just a short, faith-filled prayer. See it there in verses 36 and 37? Elijah steps up and he says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then it happened. Fire, real fire, fire from God, fire that consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, the water in the trench. Not surprisingly, you see the reaction in verses 38 and 39 when all the people saw it, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. In the early years of teaching and preaching on this passage, I didn't pick up on it. I, I always looked at the water as simply upping the ante, making, them, making the miracle more difficult so that it would be even more evident that God had performed this incredible act, which is true, all that is true. But in more recent years, I've come to the conclusion there's far more to it than just that. These people are in the middle of a drought. It hasn't rained for over three years. Water had to be getting scarce. They, they may have even been down to their last few barrels. And now this crazy prophet is insisting that they dump it all over a dead cow. What do you, what do you think is going through their minds as they do so? Probably something like, we're going to die. What a waste. There, there goes the last drop of water we have. What does that teach us? There will be no fire without reckless abandonment. The pursuit of God's presence is costly, isn't it? It requires sacrifice and diligence and time and effort. 
Is it possible, gang, that the amount of God's presence we experience is directly related to the sacrifice that we're willing to pour out? There'll be no fire without sacrifice. For these Israelites, it meant placing their entire water supply on the altar. God didn't need the water, but when he had their water supply, then he had them. And that's what he wanted all along. Why no fire today? Because in far too many cases, we're not willing to pay the price to get it. We want instantaneous, costless, painless revival. We want all the positive results and benefits of revival, all at little or no cost. We want pain without gain. We want healing without surgery. We want joy without mourning. And the Bible is very clear that God meets with those who wait on him. One of many passages that we could go to, Isaiah 64, 4, God acts on behalf of those who wait on him. Unfortunately, we want, the, we want the fire on our timetable. We want it when it's convenient for us. And he better do it by noon because dinner's in the oven and there's a big game I want to catch this afternoon. Too many of our churches are loaded with people who want a part-time, convenient Christian experience. A part-time, convenient, weekend Christian experience. Too many of our churches are loaded with people who show no serious interest in pursuing God or going deeper with him. The words of Alan Redpath are very helpful here. Look what he wrote. He said, if a man would walk with God, if a man would live a holy life, if a man would assume authority and hold it because God holds him, he has to know what it is to pay the price of a closed door. Red Pass says, I have no magic formula for your holiness. I have no hocus-pocus treatment to offer you. I have no shortcut to spiritual power. All I can say to you, get back to your Bible. Meditate therein day and night and go down before God on your face in prayer. The greatest transactions of a man's expressions are made not in church, not in public, not when everybody else is doing it but behind closed doors. I'm going to ask you again, what kind of shape is your personal altar in? Is it in ruins? Is it in a state of disrepair? Do you feel like there's been so much water dumped on you that your life can never burn with the passion of God again? Despite how you might be feeling this morning, I want to encourage you, it's not too late. It's not too late, but just like the people of Elijah's day, God is asking you to make a choice. You have to decide. How long are you going to to go through the motions? How long are you going to fake spiritual intimacy? How long are you going to keep one foot in God's camp and one foot in the camp of the world? It's time to get off the fence. Which way are you going to go? I ran across this quote from P.F. Breeze recent days. He's the founder, one of the primary founders of the Church of the Nazarene. And just really, I felt summarized so well the emphasis of what we've been studying here today. Look what he wrote. He said, a genuine revival will come only by the fire of God 
from an open heaven in answer to some soul or souls who dare to rebuild the altar of God and put the wood in order and place upon it a complete sacrifice and trust God against all odds. How about it, gang? Are you willing to be that person? Are you willing to be that church? I love the challenge that Pastor Steve has set before you. This whole idea of making, making prayer, both individual and corporate prayer, a priority here at Life Church. And I want to encourage you to accept that challenge that he's issued. As a congregation, I want, you to, I want you to embrace all that God has in mind for you. Prayer is the spark that can bring revival. You see that repeatedly throughout the pages of the scripture. You see it repeatedly through the, the history of the church. Prayer is the spark that brings the fire of God into our midst. Truth be told, I don't believe God wants us content with nice worship services and nice music and nice preaching. I think he desires us to experience something more, so much more. And that's available to us through the avenue of prayer. Remember what James wrote in his epistle? He said, Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a man just like us, but he earnestly prayed. I'll ask you again. Are you willing to be that person? Are you willing to be that church? Would it be okay if I pray with you as we wrap up today? That'd be all right? God, thank you for this fellowship of believers. Thank you for this path that they've already embarked on, this journey, Lord, of going deeper in their walk and relationship with you. There's no question, Lord, that you have so much more in mind for us. Forgive us when we are content with status quo. Forgive us, God, when we're just satisfied going through the motions. Lord, we need your fire. We want you to set us ablaze. God, send the spark to this local fellowship as they pursue you, as they carve out time to come here to the church and pray, as they carve out time to get on their face in their personal prayer closets, as they repair their personal altar, Lord. Ignite that spark that would burst into a, 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 a blaze, Lord, that would spread and, and consume the church throughout Wells County and beyond. God, our nation needs a mighty touch from you in these days. We want to be part of that. We want to be those people who, like Elijah, earnestly pray. So help us to make that decision today, and then by the power of your spirit, Lord, empower us, equip us to be all that you've called us to be in these days. Continue to bless this fellowship. Continue to bless Pastor Steve and the leadership here, God. Thank you for the, the vision of where they, they want to go. Encourage their hearts in these days, God. 
And we can't wait to hear the reports of how you're going to move among this family and the mighty things that you're going to do as they respond to your truth. That's our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed said, amen.